This is the Permaculture Podcast. In this interview by co-host David Bilbrey, Warren Brush returns to the show to share his work about fostering a vision for the next 500 years. During this time together, Warren walks us through the mentorship he's received, the mentoring he's provided, and his own discoveries of how to live a fulfilling life now and to create one for future generations. All of that is told to us through an interwoven, connected story of self, place, and meaning. Enjoy this conversation between David and Warren, and I'll join you again after. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with Ecothinka.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm here today with Warren Brush, who is a global permaculture design consultant, educator, lecturer, and storyteller. He's worked for over 25 years in sustainable systems design for communities, private and public organizations, households, smallholder farms, and conservation properties worldwide. He is co-founder of Quail Springs Permaculture, Regenerative Earth Enterprises, Sustainable Vocations, Wilderness Youth Project, Casitas Valley Farm and Creamery, and his permaculture design company, True Nature Design. Welcome, Warren. Thanks for taking some time to sit and talk today. Hey, thank you for having me, and thank you for doing the good work you do out in the world getting people's voices to amplify. It's my pleasure. So uh, it sounds like you're not very busy. We've <laughs> 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 got a few things going there. Yeah, and, you know, it's all based on partnerships and relationships. None of the work that I do couldn't possibly be done without many, many people in their hands and their, their bright minds and their big spirits jumping in and helping to get these things off the ground and moving and rooted in the ground and community. For starters, what does it mean to design systems for creating community for the next 500 years? You know, I had an elder in my life who, when I was talking about kind of planning ahead and having a, you know, a long-term vision for the work we were doing at Quell Springs and talking about the 20, 30-year plan, he said, "Uh, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh-uh. He said, uh, one, you've got to at least do 200-year planning. He said, that's seven generations out. And, and for you to really be a part of planting seeds that will grow trees that you'll never sit under the shade of, you really need to think 200 years. But he said, in my community, we'll think, which is a native community here in America, that they will go 500 to 1,000 years in their planning as a community. And what that does is it, it allows those who are yet to be born to have a seat at the table for the planning now. And it also allows you to look in both directions long-term, what's happened behind us as well. And that's an important part of designing community is to, to look at the history of place, the history of people, and, and then to look ahead or somewhat send your spirit ahead to see what what is life-giving in the long term, and what does that mean? Because it changes your decisions of the day-to-day when you're thinking that far ahead. So, in, in the context of indigenous communities, how do they how do they do that? Because obviously, it's an oral tradition, primarily at least historically. So, what does it look like to to make those plans, but also communicate them forward? Well, one is I, I could never speak for an indigenous community that's intact right now. I mean, we all we all stem from 
being people who were indigenous in the landscape, where we had our ancestors at some point had our umbilical in a place, and we were in relationship with everything that sustained us. And which is where I get my definition of, of intact culture, is a group of people who knows where all that sustains them comes from, and they honor those things deeply. So I don't want to even pretend to speak for how somebody would do this envisioning process, but I think from my own experiences and from the stories I've heard from the elders in my life is that it's a mix of pragmatically looking ahead, but also looking on deeper layers of of intuition and divination and looking and saying, what are we really envisioning for our great, 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 great grandchildren? Like, what do we want to have here? And the earthworks I do today might be what stabilizes the hydrology for these children. I'll never even, I won't even know their grandparents. So it's something where I think, you know, if you just picture any decision you're making, David, and picture a little person there, a face from the future sitting there helping you make that decision and, and how that might change the way you look at something with that person sitting there. And it's and that is what I mean by envisioning. It's like you allow a seat at the table for those future generations to speak to you. And that is a way, it's not esoteric, but it's like, what would they need? What are they looking at? What are they trying to tell me? And then thinking of how that is something that can be a guiding process for you. And I think it's something the more you do, the more it grows within you and the more relevance that it has. And again, it's we don't know the outcome and that's the beauty of it. We can only understand when they don't have a seat at the table, we can see the fast repercussions that happen on the earth like we're seeing today. You know, or should say negative repercussions that we're seeing, those feedback loops that are so quick right now because people aren't thinking ahead. We're so often in a place where we're just looking, you know, I mean, even from a market standpoint in America, it doesn't even look more than a quarter ahead, you know, let alone a year ahead. And when we think like that, everything becomes short-term gains. And in the long term, it, I think it mines our spirit. It might give us a lot of material wealth in the, in the meantime, but boy, we sure, I, I think the cost of it is our, our spirit and our ability to have an indigenous, our indigenous soul to have a home. So what does this look like um, in some of the projects that you're doing as far as creating this community? Well, one is it's there's no individual that can create community. You know, that's the beauty of it. It's uh, it's we each have our seeds that we can plant through the gifts that we each carry. You know, my belief is is that every person has been given a gift that was like given at the beginning of time, and and it's never been expressed in the history of humanity. And in all the future of humanity, it'll never be expressed. And it's up to us as communities of people to help each other discover and nurture and express those gifts so that that becomes the seeds that grows a a diverse and healthy and resilient garden. And so a lot of ways that can look for myself a lot of my gifts have been called to the international arena over these these last 10 years. I've been so fortunate to spend time in Mother Africa, the beautiful red soils of, of Eastern Africa, and a lot of time in Western Africa and up in the sub-Saharan areas of like Niger and doing different projects, both with small NGOs, but also with 
really large NGOs like uh, working with USAID and a lot of the organizations that they fund. So that's one way it's expressed itself. But one of the most important ways for me has been in my work with Quell Springs, which is uh, is my home. And I always tell people that are like, oh, I want to work internationally. It's, it's to start by building your own community and your own garden and your own home and then take what you learn out into the world. Don't go and, and learn on other people's uh, other people's gardens or other other places or, or mining other places in your learning process, but actually learn it at home and then take that story out with you into the land and and as you get called. Because like for me, I never go anywhere that I'm not invited. And so it you know there's there's a lot of ways. That's a big question. We could probably talk about that for a few hours at least, but for me, it's expressing itself a lot in the education realm, where a lot of my gifts are a lot of storytelling, a lot of uh, also honoring indigenous wisdom. And so I get called by a lot of NGOs who they are working with indigenous communities, and, and a lot of times the way they're working with them is actually not seeing their indigenous wisdom as as valid and valuable and where they actually look behind and say, Oh yeah, that's old and antiquated. We're new. And what we're bringing is, is more important or more powerful. And I just don't agree to that. And so a lot of times I get brought in to work with indigenous communities where, and they work with me and there's this exchange going on and we share our stories together and we learn from each other. And then there are things that I can offer them and there's things that they offer me that I can bring back to our communities and, and so a lot of my work has been around that in these days. Uh, this year alone, I have seven trips to Africa that I'm making, and I'm teaching in Europe for several months this year, and a lot of time away from home, which is, uh, there's something heartbreaking in that too, but it's also really beautiful. I, I, I know this stage of my life, this work around the world is a part of how my gifts are having their most amplification in the world. Could you share a story about how this has been implemented either in Quail Springs or in some of your projects in Africa? Yeah. You know, I mean, just in April, I was in northern Kenya in a place called Kakuma with the Danish Refugee Council. And it's Danish Refugee Council is like, I think it's the second largest organization in the world working with refugees. And they have a former student of mine became their resilience director for eight or nine countries of, uh, throughout Africa and in Yemen. And uh, her name is uh, Natalie Topa. And uh, she's just rocking it in Africa with her work. And so she went through a PDC with me and then asked me to come and do this work with the Turkana people up in, in northern Kenya. And so we you know, I arrive there and I'm basically doing a training for the Danish Refugee Council staff or the DRC staff and helping them to understand how to work with the local people there to build their soils and their hydrology. And so these are people who are on the edge of a refugee camp that are being highly affected by the refugees, you know, the quarter million refugees that are in that area. And they're having difficulty feeding themselves. There's food insecurity. Their water system has collapsed. The hydrology in their system has collapsed since the removal of the trees in the area. And they've asked me to come in to do this training with their staff on how to work with an indigenous community. And so the way I always start it is I'll go in and I'll, 
ask that all the constituencies within the community are represented in a meeting where the elders, the younger generations, the midwives, the grandparents, all the different people within the community and their leadership, their chiefs and their clan mothers to come in. And we sit and I ask them three questions. I say, what was it like in the time of your grandparents? What was it like in, you know, the days gone past, you know, and, and I ask in their grandparents because I knew things had shifted relatively recently there. And they told these stories of how the canopies of trees had covered, like you could walk everywhere without ever leaving the shade of a large, a large acacia or another large uh, savanna tree there. And that at that time, their streams ran from the springs up in the hills. So they had fresh water coming to their village. There was no flooding. There was no drought. They had plenty of food for their animals. They had plenty of food for themselves. And they said, life was good in the time of our grandparents. And so we let them just share that story. And interestingly, a lot of the children that are there, they don't hear these stories anymore. They don't get to hear them anymore. And so when the Westerner comes in, one of the ways that we could use our whiteness, so to speak, and that perceived power that comes with that, or that is to actually elevate the story of who they are and what they're, you know, and, and, and give it a voice. And I listen deeply and I'm completely engaged in that process of hearing their story. And when the young kids see that the Westerners are really engaged in hearing the story, it, it's something that they get more interested in, is what we've been told by the people there, because the Western lifestyle is so desirable to them. And so the kids, especially when you can you help to show that what they have is beautiful, and what they have has meaning, and what they have, there are things that they have that we don't, that are super valuable. I mean, just having an elder culture, I don't have that here in California. We don't have this intact elder culture, and we have so much to learn from each other. So I listen to that, and then I ask the second question is, what's it like now? And they tell the story of all the trees were deforested, how floods ravaged their community during the rainy season, during the dry season. Everything is bone dry. There's not enough food for their animals. So the, the, the men and the, young, the older boys have to leave for months on end, and so then the women have to forage for themselves for food and you know it's like and and their health has declined and you know on and on these stories and i say okay you know once that's all out then i say what do you want for your great-grandchildren when you look ahead what would you like what's your vision for them and then they share the story of where they want to go what are those things that they see and and this elder in kuma he's like because when the trees we're tall and covered the land. We had a better life. So we know in the future we need trees. For our children to survive, we need trees. We need to have water that's clean. You know, they, all the things that they, that they felt that they're actually the story of their grandparents alive again and then added into that schools and economy and different things as well, but came back to soil and water. Whether it's economy, community, whether it's natural resource wealth, all of it comes back to soil and water. So that's where I can step in and say, here are some places I can help you plant the rain because the trees, we have to treat the trees like we treat our children. We have to treat the soils, the biology and the soils 
needs the same temperatures that our bodies need. They need to be nurtured. They need to be fed. They need to be protected. And so we approach it from that place of these are other children that we have to tend to in the environment. And then what could we do at different scales? So working at the home scale, so producing a yield right away. So literally we do a permagarden, which is a double-dug bed, bio-intensive garden using only local resources and only local seeds, which is very unusual for an NGO to come in and do local. They usually come in and bring a lot of things that can't be replenished or found again on the landscape. We do everything from the land. And we start this whole process of teaching them how to make these bio-intensive gardens. And we plant. And like if there's amaranth growing, literally in two days, we'll get germination. And in two weeks, someone can be eating from that garden, amaranth greens. And so we're doing, uh, you know, we do that. And then we do kind of community scale and farm scale work. And then we also will bring in large equipment and do whole watershed scale restoration projects. And we, we talk about what it is to actually plant the rain and planting the rain before you plant your plants, and why you would do that. And everybody gets it intuitively once you walk them through. So this process, we did that. We went through all the scales of it. We started rebuilding their watershed. We literally put a recharge plant in for their boreholes, their wells, um, which most places I go around the world, they'll dig a well, but they won't have a recharge plan for the well. And so you have these draining landscapes where more and more boreholes are going in and they end up drying up. Like you were saying you were in Zimbabwe a few years ago, or quite a few years ago, that I was there last year and there was a place there in this region had 800 boreholes in the region and 600 of them were dry. And they didn't have a single thought to what to do to plant the rain and their whole systems were set up to drain water. So a lot of times what we're doing is coming in through their story with building soil and water, which builds all of the basis of wealth for any people anywhere in the world. And it's what we have in common. And I always try to find that place of where is our, what do we have in common? How we tend our soils and how we tend our hydrology and our landscapes is something we can share in understanding how to build wealth in a real valuable way for us. Every economy in the world is dependent on an ecology. And when we forget that, And we forget that soil and water are the basis of resilience and stability in every ecology, we lose our wealth. So then what is step two in the context of these uh, African communities? So what's been great working with these NGOs is that they have these long-term plans that they or long-term relationships with these communities. So, for example, this community called Manana Onorawai in near Kakuma, They literally have a weekly visit from the Danish Refugee Council. One of their core people stops in and checks, how is it? Are they expanding their permagardens? Are more people getting permagardens? Is there troubleshooting that needs to have happen? And then we do follow-up visits where we teach biofertilization, like how to make your own compost teas and how to do simple composting pits, how to then harvest that material and get the most benefit out of it, how to do work with uh, biopesticides as well. So if you do have a massive infestation, that there are some things you can do using tea tree oils and soaps and just simple things and milk and garlic and onion and all these things we make and we teach that. And so we have this follow-up program to that. And then the other piece of it is that we teach them the skills to expand on what we start with them. And so the tools that they can use 
other than the large scale earthworks where we bring in, you know, where we we're doing crucial kind of critical, I should say, earthworks to help stabilize the larger hydrology, they can do everything else by hand. And so we teach all the scales at once. So the home garden, the farm scale, hand dug everything, and then bam, to the bigger, larger watershed when, when you have a, a, a broken system. And we'll do it in 10 days. We'll do this whole program in 10 days. And it's, uh, you know, it's quite uh, exciting to see. And then what we do with a lot of the a lot of the communities is that we harvest their story as well. And so we do it through photography. We do it through the visits that are going on there. And then we will take some of their, their young leaders and we'll do further training with them as well. So they'll come into the local town and we'll do the next level of training, like I was saying, with biofertilizers and things. Or they'll get a chance to learn about, you know, thermophilic composting or working with with worm systems or they'll find or we'll do a market related system where how to add value to products that they're doing. And so being able to take that next step and in investing in a community, one community at a time. You mentioned a resilience design framework uh, that you've been developing with the uh, USAID. Can you talk first of all about how you came to be working with USAID? Because that's interesting. And then uh, what is the resilience design framework? Yes, you know, it's an interesting how these stories unfold because people ask this. They're like, well, how do you start? It's not like you get a degree in it and then you go and you say, this is the path I'm going to do. It's like what I my my skill sets led to this moment in time where there was an opening in USAID for them to hear from outside experts because a lot of their systems were failing. So within USAID, there was a team developed to address stunting. So stunting was a huge issue where they were getting, you know, they were doing food systems and food aid all over the world, but they were seeing wherever the USAID was doing this type of food aid, which is the commodity, high starch, low nutrient, no micronutrients in the food type food, and you were getting stunting in the children. So they weren't developing at their full capacity. And um, they were actually being limited by the food, yet they were getting all their calories, which is really interesting when we start to look at what causes that. And as they started to research, it started to come back to how plants are grown in the soils. And what is the basically the soil biology is something that enhances your whole nutrient uptake within your your plants so that you get better nutrition. So this team was developed within what's called the TOPS program, which is a a program within USAID. It means Technical Operations Performance Support Unit. And so there was a group of us who were asked to go and present to the really high up people in Washington, D.C. at a knowledge sharing event and where they only brought in people who were outside the regular framework of USAID. So it was like myself. It was Steve Gleesman, the grandfather of agroecology out of, out of UCSC, who's written the textbooks on agroecology. It was uh, Brad Lancaster, who's done the rainwater harvesting for Drylands books. It was Ben Falk. It was, you know, uh, Tom Cole, who helped to develop uh, the initial Permagarden program. It was, you know, this whole mix of people. 
that had been a part of this presentation. And after the presentation, they were blown away. Like they had just never seen, like we took them to the edge. And you know, in systems theory, David, all new energy enters through the edge. So it was like this blast of new energy. And they were so excited about it. And so their team there decided to have Tom Cole, Brad Lancaster, and myself to hire us on to help develop a training program that could bring in permaculture and rainwater harvesting, agroecology, and to develop the system over several years. So Brad Lancaster, Tom Cole, myself, another woman named Andrea Motram was our team leader. There were some other people involved in the, in the system there as well who were support uh, to us as a team. And we started to develop this framework, which is based on the permaculture design principles, agroecology, and rainwater harvesting and all the principles within rainwater harvesting. And we melded it together into a framework that has the languaging and marries with the kind of vernacular of what these large NGOs, how they work. And so we did our first training in Malawi, and then we readjusted it and wrote some more. And then we did Zimbabwe, we did Uganda, we did other trainings in Niger, we did uh, Congo, Nepal. And after all those trainings, we put together and, and wrote this 140-page manual and training program. And it couples with the Permagarden program. And it's now just being taken up within the USAID framework. So more and more people who are applying for grants with USAID are starting to call out that they want to have resilience design being a part of it. Because now USAID is saying, there's this resilience design in these permagarden, which we're seeing are highly effective. And so it's just been, it's been this explosion of interest and it's just going to grow. Like uh, what's happening with the Danish Refugee Council, they're basically basing their whole programs on this type of design frame, on this design framework. They want to involve resilience design in everything they're doing. And just to have like the second largest refugee organization in the world saying, we want to do resilience design. We want it as our framework for our work. We want that to be with everything we do, whether it's in a camp or doing a system with a local community next to a camp, they want to have resilience design there. So that's kind of the, the story of how that birthed. And it's just been this wild three and a half year ride of traveling all over the world and writing for hours and hours and hours. I think we wrote like 300 pages for this, and it's been distilled into about a 140-page framework, and then all the supporting documents that go with the trainings and all of that. I'm looking at the overview of the Permagarden Method, and it has five aims, ecological, economic, energy, nutritional, and social. And that pretty much sums it up for any any culture, even, even in the first world. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Or, or what I call the one-third world. Um, you know, it's like the one-third world and there's the two-thirds world. And, you know, and it's interesting when you get down to soil and water, everything's in common. You know, like we find that it doesn't matter where you're at, you still work within the same principles um, if you're working with soil and water. And, and then looking at those pathways in which soil and water builds community in a really healthy way. Another thing I do with communities, another another aspect of my interview with them is to ask them, what is wealth to them? What do they see as wealth? And really mapping it out. And when they say money, I have to, I have to stop that. 
And I have to say, wait a minute, you know, and I pull out a, a you know, a, a hundred burger or whatever uh, currency that's there. And uh, I have to say, you know, is this in itself wealthy? You know, wh- why is this bill or this currency worth more than a larger A4 or eight and a half by 11 piece of paper? Because that paper's bigger, shouldn't it be worth more? And they're like, well, no, no, this is worth more because we have an agreement. And I say, okay, so this agreement, if it changes like it did in Zimbabwe, you know, you know the story there where they completely, like I I had people I was talking to there who who were Zimbabweans saying, yeah, they'd be in line at the store. And by the time they picked up what they did out while they were shopping, the price would go up before they actually got to pay. And um, that's how quick the money was devaluing. And I said, so it's not actually money is the value. It's a vehicle towards other forms of wealth. And that's when we start to get really creative. Is it the only vehicle to the forms of wealth that you, that you feel you have? And it's most likely not for everything you have. That's the only, if that's your only vehicle, then you're, you're basically you have all your eggs in one basket. And you're vulnerable and you are not resilient. And so I base my, uh, you know, my definition of, of where resilience comes from is from beneficial relationships. The most beneficial relationships you can create around you, the more resilience you will have. And so whether that's ecological or whether that's social, if it's economics or energy, energyomics, <laughs> whatever you want to call that, the more relationships you have around that, the more stability you have. And so, you know, that's the primary purpose of permaculture design is to create beneficial relationships in a system for human settlement. And so that's something that, um, you know, we, when we start to talk about economics, it's really important to even go to the next layer of the onion, which is what is wealth? What are you actually, that money's important. Like I, you know, use it. It's a great vehicle, but if it's your only vehicle, then you're, then you're vulnerable. And so then we look and say, what are the pathways? How can we do this where there's a lot of resilience in it, where maybe money's one way to get this, but how else could we do this? How else could we grow our nutrition rather than growing a commodity, selling it and exporting it, and then using the money to buy food for my family? That leaves you vulnerable, like most farmers in the Midwest and farmers in the communities that where Quell Springs are who... They have to drive 70 miles to get their food, and yet they're farmers growing, you know, hundreds of acres of carrots. And uh, it's crazy. You know, it's, again, people are vulnerable, and that's part of community building is about creating that resilience that allows you to have as many beneficial relationships as you can. So, and for those who don't know, the the USAID is uh, United States Agency for International Development. And and that work is continuing with them, or or have you created this sort of curriculum and, and you're finished. You know, it's interesting. In the current administration, there was uh, basically our TOPS program was canceled. And so we had just published the resilience design framework. And so someone within, there's, there's relationships within USAID that didn't want to see resilience design get lost. So there's another program called the SCALE Project, which has picked it up. And so we're still doing work within them. But what's happened is, is now the, the agencies who are getting funding from them and calling out that they're going to be doing resilience design in their programs are now seeking us out to do training for them. 
So what are you currently doing in Africa? You say you just got back and are, are going again <laughs> several times this year. Well, April was still, I've, I've been there since April. I was in Ethiopia doing two projects, working with a large Catholic organization called the Meki Catholic Secretariat. In fact, it's really funny. I didn't know this. Um, I'm, I'm not Catholic, and, and uh, actually, I'm not religious at all. I'm very spiritual in my life, but not religious. But the Catholics are one of the largest agricultural organizations in the world. So Catholic Relief Services and organizations like Mecki Catholic Secretariat are doing the most work around agriculture. So I come in, and they hire me to do trainings. And this one organization in Ethiopia, they have 900 employees working with smallholder farmers. So it's a great place to leverage the work. And I'm working with doing food systems for orphanages. And I, I have a group called Urati's Village that I work with in Ethiopia as well on a regular basis. I'll be back in Kakuma again with Danish Refugee Council. I'll be in Ethiopia again. I'm going to be going back to Kenya. I've got another project in Congo that I'll be working on and then teaching in Europe throughout the year. I'm also been working as a judge for the Lush Cosmetics. I don't know if you know Lush out of the UK. I am a judge for their spring prize. So they give away money to organizations that are that are, and businesses that are doing regenerative social and ecological work around the globe. And people apply for grants. And there's 12 of us who have been, uh, we're going into our third year of deciding where that money goes. And really been great working with them and the organizations that... Uh, these amazing organizations around the globe, and then they bring them in, and we do this kind of knowledge-sharing event and support work and creating these relationships through this business saying, let's connect resources with these really great organizations. So that's another project I've been working on as well. How much of your work is involved in addressing sort of the, the inner side of things versus the, the exterior? You know, it's funny with... I feel like in the permaculture movement, there's so much emphasis put on land design and really not enough internal work where the work of community, but the work of also growing good awareness in people, growing good ethics within people. And I find that when you start talking about that inner side, some people kind of shut down with that. But more and more, I'm finding younger people are really looking to how they root their spiritual side of how they see the world in the in the land, and I believe that's actually what's needed for land healing to be authentic and lasting. That it can't just be a surface design. I've seen permaculture sites that have been really well designed, but people couldn't work with each other, and so the places are nearly abandoned. And how the people side of it is just as important of a design in the land because it's saying the people are a part of the land. So if you're designing for the landscape with, with the people being separate, then you're actually not honoring what is actually happening, which is that people are a part of the landscapes. We are the land. We are biologically made up of the same elements of the landscape that we're in. We're made up of the, you know, if you're a community of people drawing your resources together, you're literally made up of the same molecular structure from all the things that are feeding you and the waters you're drinking. And imagine how that helps a community, is being made up of the same biology, but then having a an understanding that goes deeper into the landscape of 
not just what am I getting and am I secure and am I resilient, but what am I doing to feed the land and what am I doing to feed the people? What does that look like for me spiritually? Because that word is a, you know, it can look, people often confuse spirituality with religion. And what I say, it's like if you're able to, you know, you can have someone from any religion and they're doing amazing things in their community. They're the ones that are, you know, that the kids feel safe with there. And it doesn't matter what their religion is. They're carrying something with them. And then you find someone in the same religion who everybody's afraid of and who is, you know, raping the world around them, you know, practically. And yet there's this, it's not the religion. It's, it's how you carry that deeper understanding of place and your awareness in the world. And so what I find is my work is about, you know, that when you started the interview, you were sharing about the different organizations. The, the, the first organization my wife and I founded was a group called Wilderness Youth Project. So taking inner city kids and bringing them out to pattern them on nature, to allow the patterns of nature to influence them. If you look at what are the there's been several studies out there that that have really focused in on what are the two things that inform worldviews. And when you go to these studies, they basically two things emerged. One is sensory input, and the other is mind focus. So imagine now your sensory input, like everything you surround yourself with is stimulating you and helping to form your worldview. So, you know, if you're a loved child and you're held and the sensory input is love, you're going to have a different type of worldview than, than someone who is constantly beaten or put down all the time or not touched. And, you know, there's like this whole other worldview comes out of that. But same with like being raised in a building with very few surface variations, unlike what you get out in a natural setting where you have natural inputs coming in, you have this immense amount of diversity of input. And then you look at your mind focus and what are you giving your attention to? And you see so many people are giving their attention to their screens more than even their families. I mean, the studies are just crazy. They give their attention to the news. They give their attention to all of these things that are, are not very expansive. When you start to look at the, the reality of a screen as a binary flashing of lights, regardless of what it's saying, it is literally this binary light flashing in your eyes, this binary system of, of, of screens sharing information, but in a very simplistic way, as opposed to nature, as opposed to storytelling with the elders around a fire. And you look at the diversity that comes from that helps to form diverse worldviews. And so I find that one of the ways I support communities is to really involve my understandings and my learning around nature awareness and nature connection that we have, that we are not separated from nature ever. It's just our awareness of our connection that is often lost. And so that becomes a big part of what I say that spiritual root is uh, working with nature awareness. So I do a permaculture course as well with the uh, uh, Wilderness Awareness School, which is where John Young's work came out of uh, with the eight shields. I, all my permaculture courses are wrapped in what we call the eight shields model, which is a cultural model based on natural patterns. So we do the learning process based on natural patterns as well, not just the design process. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. You know, are you familiar with the eight shields model? No, I'm not. I heard you mention it uh, on something I was listening to the other day. And, and so, yeah, I'm curious. It's basically a teaching around how the sun moves, how seasons evolve, how the life cycle of a plant, the life cycle of a human all have these common patterns. It's like a core pattern that is a basis for cultural regeneration, I believe. And it's, uh, it's looking and asking nature to teach us how to be natural in community and also to learn naturally and what are our natural processes as a natural being. You know, we have, we have spent, you know, what are we, two, over two million years evolving as a species and only, you know, less than 2% of that has been off the African continent and the savannah. And you imagine how much of who we are actually patterned on nature. You know, our physiognomies, our traits, so much of what we've, we've developed as humans has been in response to a natural environment. And it's only in recent times that that's changed. So my belief is, is that if you can trigger or, or open up the pathways of that natural being in someone, that they can then express themselves in a more indigenous way. And I believe in, even in a modern context. And that's the beauty is I don't say you have to go and live in the woods and live off grid. And I, I totally don't, you know, it's, it's not about that. It's about how you live where you are. And it's about understanding the patterns in you that are natural and trying to learn more about aligning those with the natural patterns that exist around you, even if you're in the middle of New York City. And so I'm a big believer in um, growing your awareness to place and the story of place and the story of place within yourself as well. So I am really interested in this in this model. And one of the things that I'm kind of in search of is because I've been going through this transition myself, like educational models for everyone from children at the beginning of their education to adults who have experienced this paradigm shift of permaculture and whole systems thinking and realizing there is a better and more dynamic and more logical actually way of living, but then trying to overcome all of the, you know, in my case, you know, in my forties, a lifetime of programming in this other system. So I'm looking for ways and models in which to help people bridge, you know, that transition over. So you can have the, you can have the paradigm shift but embodying it is a whole other, you know, big enchilada. So um, does this model address that? So whether you call it a shield or whatever you call it, what I find is that whatever, what, wherever I find communities of indigenous people who are still somewhat intact with their landscape, that they're embodying this model. And so I shouldn't say that it's not a model that was created. It's a discovery of something that's natural in the world. And it's just shared as this H-Shields model, which is basically saying that it's following a natural pattern. And so it's looking at communities as natural patterns and looking at within you as well, the community of who you are as a natural pattern and looking at where you are in the life cycle of a natural human, where you are in the, in your learning process. Is it in a natural process? And, and I just found that it's a useful guide that actually is a bridge for me to actually communicate with indigenous communities because, and then also with that indigenous part of myself, 
And it basically, the way I teach it at a PDC is we make a wheel on the ground and we basically, I walk through the process of how the sun is a certain pattern, how it moves through the day, how a similar pattern is occurring, the core pattern is occurring in the seasons that exist. And then looking at the life cycle of a plant and looking at then how us as humans all follow this core pattern. And it's hard to explain in the two dimension, uh, you know, voice and talking over a podcast, but it's, uh, it's something where it, you can see how parts of how the sun moves through the day actually exist within you. And you can see how the life cycle of the plant and the life cycle of the human, that there's all this commonality in it. And then you start to work out from there as a toolkit. So what are the things that, what does this mean for me? Like, where am I in this process of, as a human, but then where am I in maybe a learning process of learning Aikido or, or permaculture? You know, where am I in that? And, and so, again, that's another conversation we could have for a couple hours. But every PDC now I do this project, I bring this into it because I found that permaculture is a pattern science. It's basically working with patterns, and yet we don't bring it so much into the human aspects of it or the care of the people piece. And so I have found that this is a really powerful way that on the first day of a PDC, and those who don't know what a PDC is, I'm thinking most people do, it's a permaculture design certification course, is that it literally is saying we're working from natural patterns in everything we're doing. And so let's start from this place of big patterns and then look how that plays out in our life. And then how can that be a tool in community building? How can it be a tool in my personal journey, in my personal learning journey with permaculture or with anything? It's like I feel like per me personally, I'm just scratching the surface with this and I've been working with it for 25 years. And it's such a important subject for today's day and age because we have so much of how we work together or we interrelate is actually working against a natural pattern and the natural patterns that are within us. And whenever you do that, as you know, in permaculture, you, it costs you energy. Whenever you push against a natural pattern, it costs energy, whether it's ecologically or personally or whatever that is, it costs energy. So we have all this wasted energy, and oftentimes that energy is then transferred into stress, you know, is because we're pushing against natural patterns. And so I think it's important as we design to actually bring people back into a harmonic with the landscape in which they live. So I understand, you know, the, the it's a great analogy of the food forest, and so instead of trying to level everything and just have monocrops with lots of inputs from the outside. We, we work with the energy of the forest that wants to be a forest and just harness it to create food, forage, and fodder. So I get that. It, it's a lot more dynamic way to do it. Anyone who has it explained to them, it makes sense immediately. How does that translate into social and economic systems? Well, anything is energy. You know, if you look at everything as energy, and how is that energy moving? Where is it bottlenecked? Where is it stuck? Or where do you need to add more energy to keep it moving? That's when you start to find the design isn't working. And so what I, I mean, really, as permaculture designers, we're energy designers. And we're looking at ways to slow, spread, and utilize that energy in ways that give the most life. And that 
plays out, whether it's, you know, a good economic system needs to also be giving more life. Like, what is that? Are we producing more calories than we're consuming? You know, are we utilizing sunlight in a way that actually gives us more than what we're using? And how then does that play out in, in a social context as well? And it's important for us to understand, like, you know, what is it, 90% of intentional communities that are started in modern times fail. And I really feel like there's a big part of that has to do is because we're so out of our natural pattern with it that people collapse within that because it's such a personal place. And so I find a lot of permaculturists will actually stay away from the community dynamic and just focus everything on the earth piece and not look at the people piece. And so the places that have lasted the longest have the most integrated. And so stepping into what you were talking about, which was the food forest model, is basically working with succession. And what does that look like? And as a damaged landscape, if I look at myself as a kind of a modern damaged landscape where I I don't have an umbilical in the earth that I was born into. I, you know, it's like, what are those things that are going to help me grow or create the possibility for my indigenous soul to come out of hiding? You know, what are those things that I can do? Because that's where community starts. Community starts with that internal work and it, it starts with doing it in a way that's authentic. And so for me, finding what are the natural patterns of a human being And where are those natural patterns in the landscape as well? So I can learn from the elders in the landscape how to be a good human being. So a tree or a soil microbe could be a good teacher for you because they're teaching you about cycling nutrients and what that means as a human with grief. And grief needs to actually, it needs to metabolize and not get stuck. Anything that gets stuck is a waste in a system and becomes a pollutant. I love a lot of indigenous cultures talk about the Tutu Hill Mayans say that their their word for cancer is solidified grief. So it's grief that no longer moves. And so we can learn from a landscape how to metabolize those things that we need to metabolize because it's natural. Like and and a lot of the work you'll find within permaculture is about grief. And you see that at PDCs. There's always tears at PDCs because people finally have a place where they can feel comfortable enough to actually shed tears for things that they're grieving. If things that true grief, though, things that you've, you know, grief really is something that only comes from the loss of something you love. So if you don't have grief, it means you don't love anything. And so there's that part of like, what are those things in our life where we've lost what we've loved, whether it's a parent or a tree that we grew up next to or a forest or a, you know, whatever it is you know, that has lost, we have this grief. And I feel that there's a piece of that that is, it's the soil building within us that has to metabolize what's been so that a new garden can grow. And I I just find that there's a whole process of that, that I find it's the same going from a damaged landscape to a climax food forest that you can do within a human being. And it, it begins with aligning natural patterns with natural patterns. So first, understanding what is the succession process of coming back to health and being in health and being in integrity with your landscape and within yourself. And what does that look like? And then starting to move your next best step towards that because every single landscape is different, just as we are. 
And so every landscape is going to have a different next best step than the landscape that's right next to it. So everything will be different for each human, but there are some common patterns. And that's where the eight shields model for me has been really useful understanding of understanding natural patterns that are there. You know, so it's like understanding the succession process in the town where you live or the climate where you live. And that's the same thing for me is the the eight shields helps me to understand the patterns that we are as an indigenous human being and how can I start to work towards that because I feel and I my judgment is is that the indigenous human being is someone who's intact with their landscape who knows where all that sustains them comes from and they honor those things deeply and out of that comes their intactness with that place and so I'm also seeing that when I'm in that place where I'm in an honorable relationship with everything that sustains me that I am a tender of a landscape and I'm a steward of the landscape. And that's where we need to move to for that 500-year vision. That's the place where for us to be able to hand off the next generation, not just more trees. More trees is not the answer. But the understanding of how to be an integral part of the landscape where because of the footsteps that we walk, that land is going to be healthier. And that there's more food will be growing for all beings. And that there's more stability in that system because of our footsteps. That's the kind of indigenosity that I would like to grow in the generations beyond me. And knowing I don't think I'll ever be intact completely with the landscape. Because I I find that it's going to take more lifetimes than I have to be able to get to that place from where I've been. But I can set the seeds for the next generation to take the baton to do it even more than I did. And that's that's really, when it gets down to my ultimate goal of what I'm really trying to do, it, it expresses itself infinitely, but that's the core pattern of my gifts and what I'm trying to work into the world in my coyote way. That was an incredible flow, and I have several questions out of that. For starters, you're talking about grief. And I was kind of thinking of an analogy, a perfect sort of composting analogy for grief in that I had a compost pile this spring that I had added too much stuff to and it kind of went anaerobic on me and started stinking. So processing grief grief in a healthy way allows it to compost properly and create nutrient for the next thing. Not processing it kind of makes it go anaerobic and start to stink, right? Absolutely. Great analogy. Where it becomes toxic, actually. And honestly, I believe that's the root of depression is when grief no longer moves. Grief no longer has a home in you where it's it's moving and, and healthy, then depression comes from that. And so a lot of different Native peoples talk about when you get a large group of people who are depressed, you get warfare. And what we found from the you know, the increasing gap between the rich and the poor in the West is that even the the rich, even the most benefited people in the system are not happy or satisfied. They have the high high rates of addiction and suicide and all of those, even the people in the top 1%. And so and there's a lot of depression where there's a lot of money. So it is connections. It is flow. Anytime money stops and starts piling into big piles, there's problems. Anytime grief stops and isn't processed properly, there's problems that it manifests itself in unhealthy ways. So that's really good. That's a helpful, really helpful way to, to see that. And just even looking at the rich-poor dynamic as a binary 
way of viewing it. You know, it's like looking at it. And to me, that's toxic to humans is when you start to look at things in binary terms, it literally sets you up as this or that, which then divides. Nature doesn't do that. Nature doesn't do this or that. It does all sorts of different stories and triads and tetrahedrons and all of these different shapes and forms and connectivity that never ends up being binary. You don't get it's this or that. You get a multitude of interactions. And so I think it's important, like, you know, understanding it's like, again, like money is energy. It represents an agreement that has energy. And so how is that energy being used? And so it's like that same question could then go to how am I, you know, I'm killing this chicken and I'm taking its energy into me. I am taking its life so that my life can go on. What are you doing with that energy of that other life? Are you honoring that? Are you taking that energy and creating more life with it? And that's, that's like, it's just different layers of the question and how that plays out in our lives. And that becomes an important way to walk in the world is asking, you know, how am I using my energy and where is it stuck and where does it need to spread out? It's like, you know, you concentrate energy, you get erosion. It's really important that energy moves in ways that it's like with water, the energy in water, the more it can spread out, the more it can be utilized for life. And that's just a principle. If you look at more biodiversity higher in a mountain and you, or lower diversity higher in the mountain, and where it slows down and spreads out at the bottom of a system in the estuaries, you have the most diverse, highest expression of life on earth is there. You know, the most vibrant ecosystems are those systems where the water is spread out, that energy is spread out. So we know that nature is teaching us this. Like, it is not to concentrate energy other than to transport it and then respread it out. So, like, being really careful with that. And so, same with grief. It's like, again, how do you break it into its component parts so that the nutrient of it can grow something new and beautiful, the next generation of the garden? That's a natural pattern in us is that we, I hope everybody experiences grief because that means they've loved something in the world. And that, you know, I believe that this, there's a muscle in us that in one range of motion expresses itself as grief and in the same muscle expressing itself in the other range of motion is joy. And so you find people that have had, you know, like kids who have been told, you know, don't cry, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, bootstraps, you know, as young boys, they also are the same people who have a hard time expressing joy. They get flattened by that. And it becomes this important part of us to be fully exercising those muscles. That it's an important part of every intact culture in the world that I know of had incredibly extensive grief rituals. And so that should be telling us something. If we look at places around the world that were intact indigenous cultures that have been intact for a thousand years or more what are some of the common patterns and one of them is that they have grief ritual they have they have a recognition of grief and how grief needs to move and that's how they were able to be a community that lasted over a thousand years that's one reason and so that's another place to look to as you start to try to reclaim community in your own life is what is happening with people around the world that have been intact? What are the common patterns there? What do you find that's innately human? And then try to mimic it. You know, just like we try to mimic a, a, a food forest, we can mimic the healthy forest of an intact culture. And that, 
there's hardly, I would say at this point in history, there are no longer completely intact cultures in the world. But some have their story of intactness still with them. And so even to get their story, but you can still learn those processes from an oak forest. You could still learn that process from a prairie, an intact prairie. You can start to then translate what you see in nature into your own understanding of your own community. Because I believe those base patterns are actually the same patterns that influence us, that influence how a healthy oak savanna grows. So one of the things that happened to me as I was open to sort of the, the beauty of permaculture design and whole systems thinking is over a period of a couple of years as that opened up in me, then I began to have this sadness and grief over it's what was lost in our culture, but it's something I never personally had, but it was the lack I could, I could identify. I have always felt the lack or the law, the lack of something known that something was wrong, but I didn't know what exactly it was until I became aware of uh, these ideas and concepts. And so then you realize, oh my God, you know, if I'd have known this, <laughs> if my parents and grandparents would have been teaching this through, my, my life would have been much richer, you know, much sooner. And then that began, and I'm not sure that I processed the grief of that fully yet, honestly, and I, I guess I don't know how to, <laughs> to a degree, but it, it's a theme that has come up again several times here recently. Do you have any kind of uh, a place to start with how one processes that? I would guess probably in community to a degree, but where do you go with that? Well, a few things. One is just addressing something you said. One is just, uh, you know, you are the grandparent or great-grandparent that someone in the future is looking to. So just remember that to help sometimes understanding where you are in the line of history, that you're that living link between what's been and what is to be, that sometimes that is a different type of motivator than anything else I've ever experienced. It's just the recognition that there are kids that are going to call me their great-grandparent. You know, and I'm a grandparent now, but there's this like that to me means then I can't, I have to let go of what didn't come to me and just start to plant the seeds that I know are needed with what I know, you know, like, um, and so there's something there for me that is a motivator and a start of that. And, and doing your own grief work is a big part of that. So that looks so different for people and what you hit it right on the head is it takes a community of people to do proper grieving, but you can still grieve in healthy ways. And there's a couple, one resource I'd like to offer is there's a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, and it's Grief and Praise by a man named Martin Prechtel. And it's probably the best book I've ever read on grief processing and what is grief and the role of grief in community. And, um, and, and Martin is also one of my teachers, and I've been working with him for many, many years, over a dozen years, and uh, have learned so much from him around that. One of the things I find in the communities that those intentional communities that fell is that often with the intentional community that there's a there's a space to grieve, and what happens is the grief takes over the community, and people don't have time to be with their kids or plant their gardens because they're in circles all the time processing. And so understanding that 
how we as groups of people can begin a grieving process, but still our crops get planted and our children are tended to and our homes get built. And so finding that balance of how that looks. And each one of us is going to be carry different levels of grief and have expressed grief in different ways. And for me, it's it's weeping is one way, is one really good way to get it moving. And 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 grieving you cannot solve. And that's another important thing to understand is you can't solve it. There's nothing to psychologize. It just has to be expressed. And so creating safe spaces for that to happen becomes an imperative of community. So when I talked about intact cultures that have grieving rituals, their rituals are basically creating the space for grieving to happen in a healthy and safe way. And there's, you know, having good friends who you can trust, who you can basically fall apart for a week or two or a month or whatever it is. And, you know, nobody steals your cows, you know, or takes your wallet or whatever. But you know what I mean? It's like that there's times where, you know, like in in intact communities where they'll talk about, you know, someone will die and you'll basically for, you know, 260 days, you'll have no responsibilities in the community so that you can properly grieve and you have time to grieve the loss of this loved one. And you have all these different rituals to be able to allow for that process of expression of it, because that's all you can do is move it and you can't solve it. And I find that the communities that try to solve it are the ones that fail because they try to figure out how to stop it or they try to figure out what's at the root of it rather than just let it express. And and that's if I had one message to send out to communities is not to try to solve grief, but to give it a home and to allow it to move in a healthy way. Isn't that the the masculine versus the feminine energy too? The the masculine wants to solve it and the feminine <laughs> wants to nurture and <laughs> express. Yeah, yeah. And I find that, you know, we have the masculine and the feminine within us. So it's like the more balance we have and, and the, that thing that so often gets quelled in men is their ability of expression of grief and joy, like I was saying earlier. And so this idea of being a balanced masculine feminine person has nothing to do with your sex. It has to do with how you balance what you do in the world, how you walk in the world, how you are in the world. And I think it's just such a, yeah, it's kind of funny to think of it like that, is that that's one of the things that's so dominant right now is the masculine in the world, and yet we see the repercussions of that. And so what are the things that are more feminine, the more feminine balance points that we can actually give more energy to right now to help balance this intense male energy? That's another perspective as a designer to look at. Well, and and as a designer of social systems or or, uh, corporations, whatever, what have you. Well, even in a chicken system, you got to get the male-female right, you know. <laughs> but you know what I mean. You you get you have that feminine and masculine is exists in nature too, and that has to be you know a good designer's looking at that and everything. Well, and you know when you were talking before on your incredible flow you got going there, I was thinking about the context of a company and how one nurtures the capital, the human capital. So how do you how you f- created an environment where the person is the whole person is cared for where they have time off at the appropriate times maybe more time off than is traditionally um, done here in the last 50 80 years in america 
time for maternity and paternity leave that's more than like six weeks um like if you actually created a social environment in a company that really cared for all those different dynamics of the human you would have such loyalty with your employees <laughs> it wouldn't be and so the whatever the cost of turnover and hiring new employees is and it's high all that cost would be would be you know it would never be lost it's taking the energy that comes into the system and using it as many times as possible before it flows out the the bottom if you will and so so that's helpful you've helped me kind of develop uh, some thoughts and some analogies for these you know social and economic systems so that's great well uh Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been wonderful. Uh, I really do think we may need to do a part two at some point. As we wrap up, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave with us? You know, I, I just, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some of my thoughts around these issues that are embedded in, in being human. And my feeling is for all of us to really focus our energies on discovering what the gifts that we each carry and then to work on aligning the rest of your life, making it congruent with those gifts so that your gifts have a home and that they can express themselves in the world. Because if you don't do that, the world will be less whole. All of us will be less whole. And so I feel like that's one of the best starting places. And in working through your own personal grief helps you to better discover your gifts. So they all kind of work hand in hand. So once again, David, thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. And I appreciate all the people that are listening. And I hope there may be some morsel in there that helps you to better move down your next best step on your path in life. Thank you, Warren. Well, have a, uh, the best of luck on all of your endeavors. And uh, yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. That sounds great. I look forward to it as well. Have a beautiful day. And that was Warren Brush. You can find his home, Quail Springs Permaculture, at quailsprings.org. You'll also find a link to that and many of the organizations mentioned, and his past appearances on the podcast, in the show notes. Stepping away from this one, I find value in all of what Warren shared with us. That nearly everyone lacks an intact culture. That we need to create a home to work outward from, before stepping up to international outreach that we can find a sense of place and foster an indigenous spirit in a rural, suburban, or even urban setting. That we need to find a way to process grief in a healthy way. Grief has occupied my thoughts quite a bit lately, for some personal and professional reasons. On the podcast side of exploring that emotion, beyond just this interview with Warren, comes from a recent exchange with a friend. Hi Josh about the role of guilt in the destructive choices that we make, how a desire to do the right thing can lead to a crisis of comparison and paralysis where we do nothing at all. Or worse, we put on blinders and barrel down another way which leads to more harm than if we'd not felt that guilt or done nothing. Considering the premise of guilt which started the conversation with Josh, I wondered if we can look at guilt as a form of grief. Grief that stems from a lack of agency to care for what we love because of the requirements of the dominant culture and the lack of true, deep, and meaningful community. If we could make space for those feelings and express them with others who care about us through a community, could we move through these paralyzing thoughts and live fully in our own gifts and create the world we know is possible? Is creating that space now, in an acknowledged period of transition, 
a way we can heal ourselves, and with it our homes, our communities, and Earth. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and everything else covered in today's episode. You can get in touch by calling 717-827-6266, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, reach out to David, david at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or by dropping something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day envisioning your future of the world while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.